Ephesians chapter 2, and we will also be in uh, John 1, so uh, you may want to put the bulletin there or save that spot somehow because we will be referencing uh, quite a few verses in John chapter 1. The theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of His grace, and so we have been learning uh, in these first few chapters about all the wonderful things that are ours because we're in Christ. And in chapter two so far, we have learned uh, that we are in Christ uh, because God, in his great love uh, for us, he intervened to rescue us from our devotion to sin, as explained in verses one through three. And because of that rescue, because of his grace, all of the blessings in verses five through seven, they are ours, that we are made alive together with Christ. We've been raised up together with Christ. We have been enthroned together with Christ, and God's gonna show us the exceeding riches of his grace for all eternity. All of those awesome blessings are ours uh, because of that rescue, because of his grace. And so the question, though, that we are left with that Paul doesn't answer until we get to verses eight through 10 is, what is the mechanism whereby we experience this grace? How do we go from verses one through three to verses four through seven? You know, did God just, did he swoop down and just save everyone automatically? Does the cross just automatically mean everyone goes to heaven? Or do we have some responsibility? Do we have, uh, have to do something to experience it? And so that's our, our study this morning. Verses eight through 10 are going to answer that question. It is to them that believe. So, I'm going to start reading in verse 4, and then we'll pick up our study in verse 8. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus." For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So, Paul has been discussing in verse 7, you know, this grace that God's going to show us for all eternity, and and he explains again for or because, why is God going to do that? Because by grace are you saved. Now, by grace here, it actually reads in, in the original, by the grace, and so he's referencing back to the grace that was mentioned all the way in verse 5 when he said, by grace you are saved. And so we're going to get that thought repeated here, for by grace are you saved. Now, grace, what is that? It is God's unmerited or unearned favor lavished upon the infinitely ill-deserving. We get that definition from all of these verses. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor. We certainly don't deserve it when we look at verses one through three. It is lavished upon us. We see that because it's called the exceeding riches of his grace. It's, you know, it, you know, we overflow in our experience of it. It's lavished upon us. It's not held back. And it's upon the infinitely ill-deserving. Again, going back to verses one through three. We are infinitely ill-deserving because we were, we were children of disobedience. And so this is directed toward us who are in Christ. Now, again, Paul brings this up here now in verse 8 because of what he said in verse 7. 
God is going to be revealing to us the supreme riches of His grace and His kindness kindness towards us in all eternity. Every time period of eternity is going to be more of God's grace. And so Paul is now connecting verses 5 and 7 together. God's amazing, awesome grace is the source of all of our blessings at every stage of our relationship with Him. Any blessing that you experience from God is never earned, all right? There never comes a point where, you know, the Lord's up in heaven. He's going, oh, Will met his quota today. I need to throw him down a blessing. He's earned this, you know? And then all of a sudden you get a little blip in your phone, beep, you know, you have received a treasure chest from God, you know? To open it, go to this website. (laughs) That's not how it works. It's by the grace that we are saved. And, and that phrase is the same one we talked about last week. You are, which means you continually exist as saved, having been saved. The, the now that you experience is the one that started the day you got saved. You, you can never improve upon your status with God. You're standing with God. The one is, means you've been rescued. That's what it means to be saved, the one having been rescued. You are the one having been rescued continually, past, present, future, from the moment you get saved all the way through all eternity. So my salvation is a done deal the moment I repent of my sins and trust Christ. And whatever stage you are at in your journey of learning uh, you know, to know God more or learning to love God more, that is your standing from the day you got saved to now for all eternity, right? All of that is possible by God's grace. Nothing you and I could do could earn that standing, but we do have a part to play in this standing. For by grace, by that grace that Paul's already mentioned, you continually exist as someone who's already been rescued, completely rescued, but it is received by faith. Salvation is offered by God's grace, but it is received by faith. For by grace are you saved through, which means by means of, or the instrument of, faith. More literally, the faith, which means it's a very specific kind of faith. I had great faith this morning that there would be snow outside. It's Florida, right? But that's a different kind of faith than the faith, right? Right? The faith. What is the faith that Paul refers to here? Well, let me tell you what else it isn't. It's not faith that God exists. One of the most awkward lines ever in a, in a movie scene is uh, in the movie Ratatouille. And it's not, by the way, when the rats are washing the dishes. But there's a moment in there when, uh, you know, this worker, Linguini, the main, you know, uh, uh, character is, is, uh, is being, you know, a- asked, you know, how he got the job here or whatever. And he explains, oh, my, my mom died and, you know, uh, my dad, you know, owned this place. And so she asked if I could have a job. And of course, you know, everybody's sad because he brings up that his mom died. And he goes, well, shit's okay because she believed in heaven. It's awkward. And it's like, oh, okay, that, that gets you good, right? You know? No, it is not faith that God exists or that heaven exists or a better place exists. The devil qualifies for all of that, and he is not going to be saved. It's not even a faith that God loves me or that God is in control because the demons know that and believe that, and they tremble. The faith here refers to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
It, it means to be a believer. It means to believe to a complete trust in Christ. It means believing the good news about Jesus and becoming his follower. It means I place no confidence in my own righteousness, but instead place all of my confidence in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on my behalf. That's what the faith is. So we learn here then that God does not just sweep every human being into this amazing salvation, even though he's made it possible for all men to experience this great salvation. Even though he died for all and he made it possible that all could experience this great salvation, he does not just blanketly sweep all of humanity into it. The instrument or the means whereby a sinner avails himself of God's salvation that he offers to us is this faith in Christ. Now, this is not a new idea. Paul already explained this earlier when sharing with us the blessing of being sealed with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, 12, and 13. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, referring to the Jews who placed their trust in Christ, verse 13, in whom you also, most of the Ephesians were Gentiles, you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You heard the good news of the salvation that was available to you, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Very clear. No confusion here about how this happens. We get saved when we hear the good news of what God graciously did for us through Christ and we place our trust in him, period, period. I know that there are some in the church who do not like that explanation. They claim, well, then you make faith a work, that anything we must do to experience a salvation somehow diminishes God's glory. But that is not what the Bible teaches, no matter how much I might logic it out. In fact, Jesus taught exactly what Paul teaches here. Look at John 6 with me. I know I said John 1, but I'm also referencing John 6. I figured it was just a hop, skip, and a jump from John 1. John 6. Now some context. Jesus opened the all-you-can-eat free lunch bar, right, the day before, when, you know, he, he, he fed them, they multiplied the food, you know, fed the 5,000, and everybody, I mean, the place was rocking. They wanted to make Jesus king. I mean, it, I mean isn't it, it's just like, like high school, right, you know? Free lunch for everybody. That guy's to be student president, you know? <laughs> Things haven't changed. So, Jesus, because they want to make him king, uh, he goes and he takes himself to a place alone. And the disciples, you know, he tells them, hey, go over, I'll catch up with you. And so they're, you know, they, they come on, on the sea and of course there's problems there and, you know, the winds are blowing and Jesus comes walking on the water and he brings him to the other side. And so everybody's kind of camping out, you know, thinking it's gonna be man up forever, you know? And, and so, you know, this is great. You know, I don't even show up with any food and everybody feeds me, right? You know, and so they wake up the next day, Jesus is gone, the disciples are gone and they are really into this free lunch thing. And so they walk all the way around the other side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus took the boat. And finally they get there and they're like, Master, <laughs> we didn't know you left. And, uh, you know, how do you, and we're thinking, you know, you know, you got here a long time before us. How'd you get here so fast? And so, and Jesus explains, you're not here because I'm your master. He, Jesus answered and said to them, 626, 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, you, you seek me, or ye seek me, the King James says, that's the good Florida word, you all, you know. You all seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. You want more free lunch. So he says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. And he thought, well, we want that. We, we, want, we want all these things forever. And so they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Good question, right? I mean, that's probably the, one of the clearest questions that you can ask Jesus. Like, what do we have to do? Like, what quota do we have to meet? What works do we have to perform? You know, so we can do the works of God and we can have free lunch forever. Jesus said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on him. In other words, the work that God wants you to do. This is the thing you got to do, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus called it a work. So you can call whatever you want. The point is, whatever name you give it, this act of your will, this decision of your will is the one thing God requires for a person to experience his free gift of salvation. It's the one thing. And you, you must be willing to receive his gift. You must be willing to receive his salvation. Any theological system that has a problem with that has a problem with Scripture and therefore should be rejected. Period. Period. Now, I, I realize that some might be saying, we're dead in sins. Like, doesn't God have to open our eyes first? Yes. And Jesus begins that process the moment we are born into the world, the moment every single human being is born into the world. Turn to John 1 with me. I remember being in Greek class at Bible college, and uh, I don't like talking a lot about, like, giving you this Greek word or that Greek word when I teach because... I couldn't understand it when I was in class most of the time, and, and you don't need to know all that stuff. That's not usually very important. Um, every once in a while, it might have a correlation to something we do in English. We'll see later, like the word workmanship has an English word that matches with it a little bit, and so I'll tell you then. But I would go into class, and, 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 and I would come out, and Bev was at college with me, and, and, and she would say, you okay? Because I would come out not looking good. And, and I'd be like, no, no, I, I, I can't even think. My brain is just melted you know? And I would explain to her, I'm like, Bev, the one class I struggled with in high school was, was grammar. Like, I don't understand English grammar. How am I supposed to understand not just a foreign language, but a, an ancient language people don't speak anymore? But it's so cool because the teacher was walking us through John 1 and a couple other passages to teach us the differences and how they worked here. And I remember one of the things I learned early in that class came from this text, something that doesn't translate well to English, but is so beautiful when you understand this ancient language. It starts off in verse 6 by saying, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. God sent John the Baptist. The same, John the Baptist, he came for a witness. His purpose was to testify of something. And what was it? To bear witness of the light. We already know the light is referring to Jesus, the Word, already in verses 1 through 5. So God sent John the Baptist to testify about Jesus. Why? Well, for what purpose? That all men through him might believe. That's God's desire that everybody might come to trust in Christ. And that's what John the Baptist came to do, to tell people to do that, to prepare people to do that, to testify that that's what they needed to do. Verse 8, 
He, John the Baptist, was not that light. He wasn't the Messiah. But he was sent to bear witness of that light, Jesus. Verse 9. That was the true light. Jesus was the genuine light, the real light, which, here it is, lights every man that comes into the world. We have something, we, we don't use in our English language something that we would call a, a present participle. We, we, we sometimes use it, but we don't even know we're using it. But, but in this ancient language, they could have a word that would mean the action that I'm telling you about now occurs the same time that the main verb is, is acting. And, and what you have here is a part, present participle side by side with a, an important verb. And so the important verb is that when every man, the moment he comes into the world, the moment every human being is born, Jesus is, begins giving light continually to the day he dies. I remember I was like, I can understand that. I can get that. This is such an important truth to understand. This idea that the moment we are born, God begins, you know, in Christ, bringing light to us, revealing himself to us. The Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's why you never have to tell your kid when they're a little tiny baby to hide when they did something wrong. They have a conscience that God's given to them, and in addition, have the Holy Spirit saying, you're doing something wrong. Don't do something wrong. Something's wrong with you. (laughs) And that light that Jesus begins shining the moment we are born, he continues shining, either until we die or we, you know, the possibility of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where you just, you've rejected Christ so many times, you just, the Lord says, okay. If I am lost, if a person is lost for all eternity, they cannot blame God for not opening their eyes. I can only blame myself for rejecting Jesus. And that's what verses 10 and 11 of John 1 say. He, the Messiah, was in the world. The world was made by him. It should have recognized him. Should have known their creator. But it didn't even know him. Why? Romans 1 tells us. Because we, we worship the creation rather than the creator. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, you know. It's why God's wrath revealed against us, because of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So he was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world didn't recognize him. He came into his own, his own people that he, he was promised to, and his own did not receive him. Where's the blame place? He didn't say, you know, his own didn't receive enough light or they weren't chosen. No. They didn't receive him. In contrast, if I'm saved, it is because I responded by an act of my will to the light Jesus gives to every human being who is born. And that's what verse 12 tells us here in John 1. But in contrast to someone who's lost because they did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And it's almost like John knew we would make this complicated or mess it up or try to become smarter than God. Because then he clarifies, even to them that believe on his name. The teaching of Jesus, the teaching of John, and Paul all align. 
It's not complicated. You don't need to get a systematic theology book to understand this. You just need Ephesians and John. Some might say, what about verse 13, Pastor? Well, we'll get to that. But I know when I share this with some, they would say, well, doesn't that mean you save yourself then? Not at all. Would the person who's drowning in the ocean say they save themselves because they took the hand that offered to pull them out? The hand that pulled all the weight because you had zero strength left and you're about to go under? Not at all. That would be absurd. No one would get out of the ocean, you know, and, and step onto the lifeboat, you know, and, and be like, oh, man, you know, it was a good thing, you know, that I took your hand because, you know, you know that was all me, you know? And nobody's going to get in a boat and be like, oh, do you see what I did there? You know, I saved myself. No one would think that. That's an absurd thought. And so it is also an absurd thought that faith that being a choice somehow takes some of God's glory. That's an absurd thought. You know what I've learned in my time reading my Bible? God doesn't need his glory defended by the likes of you and me. He does just fine on his own. He doesn't need me. In fact, he never tells us we need to do that. And so adding to the word of God for any reason, even even an overzealous desire to see God glorified is a wicked thing when we add to the Word of God as a result. Now, salvation is something uh, that is offered by God's grace. It's received by faith. And then as we continue reading, Paul makes it clear that salvation is entirely God's gift with his next words. He goes on to say, for by grace are you saved. The mechanism is faith. And then he explains, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any, anyone should boast. How is salvation offered? Well, salvation is the gift that's offered. The word here, that, is frequently associated with, well, see, I mean, you just, this contradicts what you just taught, Will. You know, I mean, it says that faith is, is not something we do, it's a gift from God. That would be incorrect grammatically. Um, again, I know I'm giving you a lot of information this morning. We don't normally do this but for, on language, but that, the word that here is a demonstrative pronoun. What's a demonstrative pronoun? Well, it, it, it's a pronoun which means, uh, I know we get into pronouns a lot these days. <laughs> Not going there, so. <clears throat> a demonstrative pronoun means it refers to whatever the previous matching noun would be. Now, that's something we don't have in our English language. When I use a pronoun, you're going to associate it with the last noun I used. That's how our English language works. But ancient languages don't work that way. In fact, uh, something that's unique about our English language is we don't, I know that certain words are more feminine and more masculine than others in our language, but we don't have specific groupings of words, you know? You know, like, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, say, you know, hey, Jeremy, that was a great announcement today, you know. Um, and then if a woman came up and gave an announcement, I would use completely different words. We don't do that in English. In many other languages, though, that's the case. You know, if a woman got up here and did it, you would use different languages. So there's words that you would use for feminine, you know, for a, a woman, and the words you use for man. Japanese is, is very, like, you would never use a man word, address a man with even any words that are the same that you would address, you know, a woman with. It would be an insult. Uh, and, and I'm not saying... I'm not saying that's, you know, because they don't like women. That's not the point. It's just they, they make it very clear that that's, you know, there's a difference. A little bit better than we do here. But 
Greek is similar. Uh, Greek has actually three genders. So they're gender fluid. No, just kidding. Um, they, have, they have masculine, feminine. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Uh, masculine and feminine and, uh, and then neuter is what they have. So it has no gender, you know. Um, and so when you have a demonstrative pronoun, the way you know which noun it's referring back to is it has to match. You, if, the, if the demonstrative pronoun is feminine, you can't say it matches the previous noun if it's masculine. You got to go back and find the last feminine one, okay? So, because of that, the word that here cannot refer to faith. Faith is written in the feminine gender here, and the word that is written in the neuter, neuter gender, gender, all right? Now, I didn't need to give you a Greek lesson to know that, of course, because we already know faith isn't the gift of God here because we know that God gives every human being at least enough faith to be saved. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it tells us exactly that. It says in Romans 12, 3, for I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. God has given to every human being the measure of faith to be saved. So that verse, and, and some say, well, no, Pastor Will, that verse, it only refers to the faith um, to use the gifts that God's given to us. But that's not what the verse says here, because Paul is going to talk about spiritual gifts if you keep reading in Romans 12. But that's not what this verse says. It doesn't tell us not to think we're better than others by recognizing that we all have different gifts according to the different measures of faith God gives us to use those gifts. It tells us not to think more highly of ourselves. Why would he say that? Well, you go up to verse 1. Therefore, brethren, I beseech you because of the mercies of God. All I've taught you in chapters 1 through 11, you know, the mercies that God has shown to you, this great salvation you've experienced. In light of that, present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And also, by the way, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might show what is that good and perfect will of God. Oh, and one other thing, by the way, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think soberly about yourself as you remember that God's given to every man the measure of faith. That's the context. We should think clearly and correctly as we're moving forward in our relationship with Christ. We should not think pridefully because the truth is none of us would have come to God if he left it up to us to make the first move. None of us. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't better than anybody else. You know, I can't sit here and go, <laughs> some of us are smart enough to flee the wrath to come and get saved and some of us aren't. No, that's not the case at all. Therefore, none of us should be boastful about our position in Christ. Jesus is the one who began opening our eyes the moment we were born, and Jesus is the one who gave us the measure of faith necessary to be saved. And so just like John chapter 1 teaches, Jesus does that for every person. That's what Romans 12, 3 says. So none of us are better because we responded in faith. And so... The word that here, and therefore the gift of God, cannot be faith. At Calvary Chapel, Orlando, we reject the teaching that regeneration precedes faith. We reject the teaching that God only gives light and faith to the elect. 
because the Bible never teaches those things. So, what does the word that refer to then? What is the gift of God? It's an important question, and it's, we need to know the right answer, otherwise you're gonna mess up the rest of the chapter. So the last neuter gendered word in our text is actually all the way back up in verse six. It's the word heavens, where it mentions that Christ has enthroned us together. We've been enthroned together with Christ in heavens, in heavenly places, in the heavenlies. This place of enthronement in heaven is one of the blessings that comes to those who are in Christ. And so almost all language experts say the word that there, it refers to our position in Christ. The word saved probably is what Paul had in mind there. Since being enthroned with Christ is just one of the many gifts of grace God gives to those that he saves. So salvation is the gift and all the benefits of being in Christ that come with it. Now, I know that's a lot to do over one word, but again, it's important to correctly understand that word or we can generate some incorrect conclusions. What's the point then? The point is we are not the source of our position in Christ. That's the point. Our position in Christ is a gift from God. For it says, and that, not of yourselves, literally, from a source of yourself. It's not from out of you. Instead, what is it? It is a gift or the gift of God. It's the present that God gives. And thus we get to John chapter 1, verse 13. It mentions in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And then it explains, which were born, we were born again, we were placed in Christ, not of blood, not because of my lineage. You know, it's not like, you know, the Lord was up in heaven and going, Will comes from a great bloodline, we've got to get him into heaven. You know, we can't let Satan have the good bloodlines. I had nothing in my bloodline that I could, that, that, that earned, earned my way to heaven. It was a gift not of the will of the flesh or of the will of man either, but of God. In other words, God's will. Okay, I didn't, my flesh did not come up with this plan and say, you know, Will, you know, you know I'm a mess. Like, I'm, I'm dead. Like, I'm, I'm a mess and, 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 and I'm lost. And so, you know, here's, here's a proposal. You know, how about we fix this by you asking God to come and be a man and die for your sins, and then, you know, we can, we can fix this mess we're in. That's not where that originated. That plan, that gift didn't originate from, from my flesh, and it certainly didn't originate from, from my will, my heart. It came out of God's heart, his will. Salvation was not man's idea is what John is saying in John 1.13. It was 100% God's idea because of his great love for us. And because of that great love, he made the first move and he offered us a present that's why John 3.16 is so often used to share the gospel, because it sums it up really simply. For God so loved the world, everybody in it, every single human being in it. He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That what? Whosoever's eyes are opened, whosoever's the elect, no, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's simple not complicated. 
And so Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, verse 9, it's also not out of a source of works. It's not from out of our our good deeds. This present isn't one that needs to be earned by meeting a quota of good deeds or by completing a list of religious rituals. It's a free gift offered to all that just needs to be received by faith. Lest, why does it need to be a free gift? Lest any man should boast. And here's the truth. How can any of us boast when we receive such an undeserved gift? My kids are great. I love my wife. Christmas is always a big deal at our house. And, uh, but I think if any of them ever opened up the, a gift that I gave them, or we gave them to our kids, and they kind of opened it up and I thought, <laughs> you know, Dad, you know, I earned this. I mean, you know, every time I sweep that floor, I mean, you could step on a Lego and just go flying, break your neck, and it'd be all over. So, you know, I've earned this. So, you know, it's, I'd like to say thank you, but the truth is I need to thank me. (laughs) They would not get any more gifts. I'm telling you right now. They'd be like, yeah, you can earn your own presents from now on with the cachet you don't have, you know? (laughs) Of course no one would do that though, right? I mean, what do you normally do when you open something up? I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm going to tell you, if you open up, you're like, oh, yeah, I earned this. You got need to deal with that. Most of the time, you're like blown away, right? You're like, why would you do that? This is so thoughtful. Like, I don't, I don't deserve for somebody to think of me like that, you know? Like, you know, how many times, you know, my kids have opened something up and, you know, because they asked for something and you know, I know I probably can't get that. And all of a sudden, you know, the Lord provides and you get it for them and they open it up and they're like, what? What? You guys are crazy. How did you do this? Well, the Lord provided. You know, you know no one's thinking I deserve this. And that's what Paul's reminding us in Romans 12, 3. It's his point. Stay humble. Remember who made the first move. Remember the cost of the cross. Boast about that. And because God's works, not ours, are the source of our salvation, when we place our trust in Christ, well, guess what? We become one of God's works too. Look at verse 10. For, again, because our works aren't the source of our salvation, therefore, we are his workmanship. We are is the same we are are you in verse 8. It means to continually exist as his workmanship. And this is that word I mentioned earlier, poema. That's cool because we know what a poem is, right? It's a a piece of art. You know, someone writes something, it's a piece of art. They're going to recite it or maybe it'll turn into a song. You know, it's a work of art. The word poema is a compound of two Greek words that mean to do or make and to result. The moment we place our trust in Christ, we become the result of his making. He begins doing that. We, We become now the result of his doing. We become God's work of art, his handiwork. Well, what kind of artwork is God making us, in us, or of us? Well, it says, created in Christ Jesus. The word created means to bring something into existence that did not exist before. We were not works of art before we were saved. 
this is where that, that, all, that other theology that I've been mentioning today f- falls apart. You're, you're not a work of art before you're saved. But when you get saved, you place your trust in Christ, you are now created anew. Something that didn't exist before now exists. And God begins to do his work. Before we were saved, we were children of wrath because of our decision to be children of disobedience. We were not works of art. We were the farthest thing from it. But when we turned from that and we received God's gift of salvation by faith, we were created anew and we were placed in Christ. That's why Jesus called it being born again or born from above. It's a whole new thing. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if any man be in Christ, not before you're in Christ, regeneration does not precede faith, not before you're in Christ. If any man be in Christ, then he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen? Being in Christ is our new existence. And the moment that new existence began, God began the process of molding and shaping us into someone who looks more like Jesus instead of a child of disobedience. And so it tells us what we were created in Christ Jesus for. It says, unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Unto means with, for the purpose of or with a view toward good works. What are good works? It's works that please Him. And I like the word good in the, in the New Testament because it's a little bit different than our word good. We usually just apply a moral thing to it. But like, have you ever been out to eat and, and you're kind of surprised? You're like, man, that was good stuff. That's kind of the idea of this word good. It means something that was useful, something that was beneficial. In other words, works that actually matter. You can do lots of things the world calls good deeds, but they may not be useful for God's kingdom. They may not be useful to Him at all, and they certainly may not please Him. Certainly don't please Him if they're done in our own strength and in rejection of Christ. But now, God made us born again. He, he brought us in, into this kingdom. We're in Christ with a view toward it for the purpose of that we would now do things that please him, that, that the things we do would be useful to him and to his kingdom and to others. Now, there's more here because when we get saved, God doesn't come to the canvas of our lives and say, hmm, what should I make here? You got any ideas to do with, what to do with this person, Gabriel? That's not how God operates. He has a plan, had a plan even before we were created anew. For it says, these good works which God has before ordained, the word before ordained just means to prepare in advance, which he had prepared in advance, that we should walk in them. It just means that we should live them out, that we should go about doing them, you know? God has specific things he's chosen you to do. He has specific things that he has chosen you to do. Isn't that a cool thought? Like you're not just one of the masses out there and, you know, and God's like, oh, you know, put them in research and development, you know? No, like he knows your name and he has specific things he wants you to do. He's chosen you to do. And God is working in your life and my life each day so that we are enabled to do those very things. Isn't that awesome? 
Like every day I can know God is doing something in me even when my day seems very normal, you know? In fact, it might even seem like God's absent from my day because it's too normal, you know? It's like I'm just doing the same thing I did yesterday. But we can know without any any confusion or, or any contradiction that God is indeed working in us because he made plans that he prepared in advance that we should go about doing them. Now, I know when I say these things, sometimes it can be discouraging uh, for Christians because like me, maybe sometimes you look at yourself and you don't see very much beauty. I'm a work of art. Yeah, I'm some really weird abstract art here, you know. I'm like one of those messed up Picasso things, you know. know, Three noses and five ears and missing, you know, whatever. We often don't see how we're part of God's plan. Like, I, 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 what do I do that it's useful or part of God's plan? But I would have you consider this. If God, and we know he does, if God has specific eternal plans for all of us, literally never ending as it says in verse 7, that for all eternity he's going to be you know, showing the exceeding riches of his grace, through every time period that comes about, he's just going to keep saying, okay, this is the new plan I have for you. If God's got that big of a plan for all eternity, for all of us, wouldn't it make sense that God would have a plan that includes each one of us in this life too? That's what makes logical sense to me. He does. He has a specific plan for you now too. You, if you're in Christ this morning, You are his work of art. You're his handiwork. So stop trying to be good enough on your own to be on the, you know, on the the easel, you know? That's what I have done so often in my life. You know, the Lord's like, all right, all right, Will, I'm gonna start doing this. Like, oh, I'm not worthy. You know, you jump off the easel and you're like, go down here and have a pity party, you know? And, you know, Lord, come on, all right. All right, I'm going to, you know, like Bob Ross, paint a little fuzzy tree here, anyway, you know, a little bit of patience here, a little bit of more graciousness here, learn to show mercy, you know. And, and God's doing this, and, you know, the problem is, is that we're living sacrifices, right? You know, like, that's like, you know, trying to change a baby's diaper. It's constantly in motion, you know. It'd be a lot easier if they weren't moving, right? You know, if they were sleeping, you know. You know, it'd be, I'd be done. We're living sacrifices. And so, you know, the Lord, you know, start putting a color in that we don't like. And, you know, we're, we see it as a knife coming in to cut something off. We think, I need that. And so we move. Stop trying to be good enough on your own and let the master painter work. He knows what he's doing and he loves you. The truth is, trying to be good enough on our own is how we ended up as children of wrath in the first place, right? Rest in the potter's hands, knowing you're accepted, knowing you're loved, knowing you're enthroned in the best seat in heaven that you can get. And let him have his way as he works on you because he will finish what he starts. That's what Philippians 1.3 and 1.6 say, and I'll close with this verse. Paul the Apostle in Philippians is just book right after Ephesians.
Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And in Philippians 1, 3, I, every time I think about you, I just thank God. You know, every time I, I'm reminded of you. And then in verse 6, he explains, being confident, because I have this great confidence of this very thing. I'm confident of this very thing, this real thing, this true thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will complete it, perform, the King James says, but completes the right word, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, stay humble. Give glory to God and receive all that he has for you and trust his plan. If he loved you enough to intervene when you were his enemy, how much more will he take care of you now that he has created you anew as his child? Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you so much for these rich truths from your word. The gospel, Lord, we're so grateful for this good news, these blessings. And we thank you that it's, it's all of grace because we know we could never earn it, Lord. And so, Lord, I, I pray for any of my dear brothers and sisters this morning who are struggling with condemnation always trying to get back on that treadmill to be good enough for God to work in their life. I pray that this truth, this blessing of your grace, Lord, it would just take root in their hearts, take root in all of our hearts, Lord, that we'd not, never be moved from the grace of God to somehow begin relating to you in a legal way again. But Lord, that we'd receive that grace day after day, that we'd let you do your work, that we wouldn't squirm under your hand, But as we rest, Lord, in your promise that we are your workmanship, that you have a plan, and by your grace you're working it out. Work it out, we pray, in our lives. And let no one leave here today, Lord, who's not right with you, who has not experienced your grace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.